Hey, Three Crosses family, Pastor AJ here. I pastor life groups and discipleship. And today we are jumping into a new two-week mini-series on Luke 19 and specifically talking about money. So get ready. And with that, let's go deeper. Well, it feels like it's been a little bit. It's been two weeks since we've been joined by Pastor Danny Strange. Welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to get back in the podcast recording rhythm with you. Yeah, it's great. And so just to launch us off here, we talked about money. And I know if you've been listening, uh, been a faithful listener to the podcast episodes, you know that at the beginning of this year, we talked about our series being wrapped around identity. So I'm wondering right off the top of the bat, uh, why money? Like what led us to this brief two-week mini-series? Yeah, we've been privileged over these last couple of years just to to see a ton of folks uh, come to church who've never been to church before. And so one of the things that we've been doing as a teaching team and that I've been doing as I pray for our church is kind of think, okay, what are what are some of the foundational things that Jesus talks about a lot or the Bible speaks about a lot that we need to be faithful to equip our people in, to disciple them in, um, around a Christian worldview. And one of the topics that came up uh, was this topic that Jesus talks about more than heaven and hell combined, uh, our finances, our, our money, our wealth. And so uh, last year just said, hey, you know what, let's devote a couple weeks next year to talking about what the scriptures say about this exciting topic of our money and finances. Yeah, it's a one that um, I can imagine there was a lot of people out there like, I don't know, (laughs) I'm not ready to talk about my money yet. And uh, man, there's a lot of good stuff in Luke 19. So I'm really excited to dive in with you over these next two weeks. But uh, to begin with, we started with Luke 19 uh, verses 1 to 10. And so I'm going to read bit by bit and uh, ask you some questions along the way. So here we go. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So I'll pause there. Um, Again, we're going into the book of Luke here. And so I wanted to ask two orienting questions at the top of this episode. Number one, help us orient ourselves to Luke 19. So what is the bigger picture of Luke? Like what stands out to you specifically about Luke's gospel that makes this scene so significant? Because I'm pretty sure this is only in Luke. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a similar, there's some similar phrasing of some of the things that Jesus says in other gospels, but this account, I can't think of it in any of the other gospels. Right. So what makes this so significant within this passage here uh, and the Luke narrative of the gospel overall And then zooming in at a micro level, we're we're told that this scene begins with Jesus entering Jericho and passing through. And so any student of the Bible might be saying, huh, Jericho, man, I haven't heard that city in a long time, maybe thinking about the book of Joshua. So is there anything on the micro level that stands out to you about this? Yeah, Luke is a brilliant author and observant follower of Jesus. And we know that Luke 
uh, by profession, was a physician, and so trained in the art of observation and seeing things and making diagnostic decisions. We see in his two works in the scriptures, Luke and Acts, in both, as he begins them, he talks about writing an orderly account, wanting to bring out for us what precisely happened in the ministry of Jesus. And also, as we look kind of beneath the surface of Luke's writings, we see that he draws out a lot of themes of Jesus' ministry almost implicitly that once we see them, we can't unsee them. Luke is the author that shows the ministry of women in Jesus' ministry more than any other biblical author. And on this topic of money, at first glance, Luke doesn't talk about money more or less than anybody else. But at a closer glance, once you kind of see the theme of finances, Luke is someone who talks actually about money all the time, but through the lens of other things. We did a series a couple of years ago on a bunch of parables in Luke, like the prodigal son or the lost coin, uh, or all of these different stories from Luke, probably 15, 12, 13, 14, 15, like this whole section, they were all about money when you look beneath the surface. And so the same thing happens here, right? We have this Zacchaeus story that just seems like a guy meeting Jesus, but there's this subtext of finance based on who he is. And next week, this parable of the talents that we always teach, like it's about our skills and giftedness, but to an ancient audience was primarily about money. And so Luke was someone who wrote an orderly account of Jesus' actions and work, but also brought these themes from beneath the surface that we can learn a ton from. And so it's exciting to look at Luke at a macro level, at a micro level, Jericho, I don't know, right? Jericho is a famous city in the scriptures. If you read Joshua, there's a lot of stories about Jericho in Joshua. Rahab and the spies was in Jericho, the famous battle of Jericho, uh, when the walls come tumbling down. Uh, and so some of these things maybe can be thematically helpful. I haven't honestly looked too deeply into the Jericho connections in Luke 19. That's totally fine. It just uh, seems like a geographical location that Jesus is going to on the road. I know that's one of the things that stands out to me about Luke is uh, this whole middle section of the book of Luke is Jesus on the road back to Jerusalem. And it's pretty beautiful, actually, how it ends with the road to Emmaus, which we've gone over in previous messages as well. So it feels like we're on the road with Jesus. Luke is writing this account that's showing all of these scenes. And so along the way, we meet this Zacchaeus. And that this Zacchaeus gets described in three ways, which you brought out in your sermon. He's number one, the chief tax collector. Number two, he was wealthy. And number three, he was short. And you did a great job describing out what each of these three meant in your sermon and in the context. Um, yet, I'm still imagining a lot of people out there having a hard time trying to relate to what you said about Zacchaeus to today. So I'm wondering, as you were thinking through the themes of Zacchaeus and the character of Zacchaeus, were there any particular types of people that you had in mind uh, while you're preparing your sermon? And uh, yeah, help us understand how we could um, begin to sympathize or even empathize with this Zacchaeus character. That's a fantastic question, because on the surface, Zacchaeus kind of wore his character on his sleeve. Uh, this is, we talked about him being a chief, wealthy tax collector and his relationship with money in terms of his vocation, how he got his money, how much he got, all gave him a reputation in the religious community as an unrighteous person. And so as I was studying the text, I just kept thinking about how Zacchaeus' relationship with money 
was hurting the reputation of Jesus even in the community. And so it wasn't really hard to kind of think through what does that mean in, in everyday life? What somebody who their relationship with money puts Jesus in a bad place? And so my mind went to people who claim to be Christians in the workplace, and yet they act unethically. And through acting unethically as a wealthy person, as a boss, as a whatever, hmm. it gives Jesus a bad name. But at the same time, I felt like that kind of moves away from the main point of this text, which is really about Zacchaeus's heart condition and somehow his relationship with wealth, keeping him out of a relationship with Jesus, not just merely the reputation with Jesus, of Jesus. And I think that's where it kind of started to unlock in my mind some some doors of modern day application that you know I think for a lot of us, uh, even though we might not wear our relationship with finances on our sleeve, and no one in the world might know what they are, it's just in our own hearts our relationship with money in our hearts actually can cause a wall for many of us in our relationship with Jesus. We're scared he wants to ask too much of us. We're scared that if we follow him too deeply, he's going to make us give it away, right? We're scared that he's going to make us change our career. We're scared that he's going to make us donate more to charity. We're scared that we're going to go to hell because we're not giving enough to the poor or whatever it is, right? We look at these scary things in the scriptures around money and there's some kind of tension between us and money and Jesus and I mean, like the Bible talks about, we feel like we're serving two masters sometimes. And so I really felt like this text for the modern day audience resonates more with our heart's connection with money than our reputational connection with money. Uh, but I'm sure there's some folks who actually probably classically relate to Zacchaeus as well. I love what you said about Zacchaeus's heart, because already in the scene, we start to begin to see what is actually going on in Zacchaeus's heart. So at verse three, we left off saying he wanted to see who this Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. The passage goes on to say, so he ran and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. I have a pretty simple question to start this section off. In verse four, we are told he climbs a sycamore fig tree. <laughs> I'm wondering, is there any significance behind a sycamore fig tree? Like, I feel like Luke didn't have to specify it, but he goes for it. And, uh, you know, it's funny because Zacchaeus is often referred to in these children's songs. And the imagery that popped up in my mind was like he's climbing this tree and all of a sudden there's like a branch that, you know, uniquely sticks out right to where Jesus is. And so he's like climbing it and he gets like this special access to Jesus, you know. Am I reading too much into this? Are the image the people who paint those images in children's books like reading too much into the tree here? Um, I'll leave it up to you to answer this simple question. <laughs> Jeez, I, I mean, it's a a simple question. Maybe I think the if it just said fig tree, it'd be a little easier, right? Fig right. trees are a symbol of. Uh, prosperity in the Old Testament, this idea that when the kingdom comes, uh, one way that we will be able to relax and enjoy the presence of God, that concept that comes up probably four or five times in the Old Testament, everyone will sit under his own vine and fig tree, uh, that this symbol of rest, prosperity, figs to be eaten. Uh, on the opposite side of things, figs, when they're dried up, is a symbol of uh poverty, right? Though the fig tree withers, I will still praise the Lord. I think that's from Habakkuk, right? Uh, and and so figs is this symbol of prosperity or uh, lack of prosperity. 
but it doesn't say fig tree. It says, uh, right, sycamorea or whatever the, the Greek word is, which this is the only time in the Greek New Testament this word shows up. <laughs> um, and so probably if I lived in Israel now or in the first century and I got to see one, I'd be like, oh, that's why this is important. Maybe it's a really tall tree, but it's, I haven't done that research. <laughs> um, maybe the, the word sycamore in the Old Testament is used a bunch of times, some in connection with figs. I haven't looked deeply into like Amos where it talks about that to kind of see, um, you know, is there a... a metaphoric symbolism of the tree. Maybe it was just the type of tree he climbed. Right. And I think the last maybe two questions in both of the sections are just an example of maybe trying to read too much into stuff. Maybe you know? unless there's something there. And then it's <laughs> like, there's something there. Cool. You know, uh, before this podcast episode started, uh, I mentioned that, you know, we're talking about walls and barriers to people's hearts. And I was like, oh man, what better place to talk mm. about walls and barriers than the city of Jericho? I know he doesn't walk around the city walls seven times, right? But uh, he climbs the tree and the <laughs> walls come a tumbling doll. He breaks down the walls. Yeah, he breaks it in a new and better way. And maybe the sycamore tree has something to do with it. Anyway, going back into the conversation here. Yep. Um, I love how you began the sermon equating this conversation about money to, quote unquote, the talk. <laughs> and when, yeah, when we had some discussions about, you know, this illustration about the talk. I find it interesting that Jesus hardly talks at all. Mm. And he, he says two things. And the first we see here, he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And so looking at the words of Jesus here, zooming in on those, is there anything that you see in here that, um, particularly stands out to you about this scene or that we should learn from here? I think, I mean, I love the beauty and simplicity of, uh, you know, this is not what you necessarily think of, but remember that scene in Indiana Jones where uh, the the guy comes out with like the big swords and he's right. And he's ready to like fight Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones just pulls out the gun and shoots the guy dead <laughs> in the street. I kind of got that image when you were describing this passage because the, the way that Luke sets up the packet passage is there are so many barriers in the way for Zacchaeus that there's no way he's going to get to Jesus, right? He His stature is such that he can't even see over the crowd. Right? My aunt was in London a few weeks ago. My aunt is also a very short person. She was in London a few weeks ago for the crowning of King Charles, and uh, she was three rows back. She couldn't see over the crowd, and somebody gave her a step stool finally. And <laughs> so I got a picture of like her holding up her phone over the crowd, right? So he's his stature is creating a barrier. He can't see through these crowds. Uh, his reputation has created a barrier in the community, uh, his unrighteousness. It seems like he's been unfaithful towards people and he's made some wrongs. All of these things, we're thinking all these barriers, this guy will never be able to connect with Jesus. He won't see him. He can't get to him. If he did get to him, he'd be the kind of person that Jesus would say, get out of my sight, right? Uh, a big fight is ahead of him. But then Jesus cuts through all of that. He doesn't address anything. He just looks up at him and says, I'm coming to dinner, right? And I just love that because what we see is that all of these potential barriers that could exist between him and Jesus, Jesus is the one who cuts straight through and says, I want to be with you. I want to spend time with you, uh, even though it gives Jesus a bad reputation in the community for doing so. Which is where the passage immediately goes after verse six. It says, Zacchaeus, he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And then we get this vision of the community that sees this happening that says, all of the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Mm -hmm. 
This isn't the first time we see this type of language about Jesus being a friend of sinners or eating with the tax collectors or all those things. In fact, a couple passages in Luke talk about that explicitly. Um, I pulled this quote from one of the commentaries uh, who dives deeper into like what it meant to dine with sinners. Hmm. And basically it says, to accept the hospitality of a man whose wealth is ill-gotten, like Zacchaeus, is to become a partner with him in his crimes. So the practice of social ostracism was a means of deterrence. And so I'm imagining there is this pressure from the community for Jesus to associate himself with the right people, to partner his ministry with the right people so he doesn't associate with the crimes Zacchaeus may have committed. And yet Jesus comes to become a friend of sinners. He welcomes in sinners to the point where, like I've been saying, he gets described as their friend. I'm wondering, as followers of Jesus, how do we navigate this tension well? This tension where there's a lot of pressure in society to associate yourself with the right people and stand firm in your faith and also, when you become friends with sinners, you're almost tempted to then compromise on what you actually believe. So it seems like this is a really tough thing to get right, this tension of being friends with sinners. So mm-hmm. in your pastoral experience, can you help us with some tips or you know anything, insights to do this well, becoming friends of sinners? Yeah, I think there's the two poles, uh, the two sides of the spectrum that religious people generally uh, are repelled from people who aren't religious people. So, uh, and that's a flaw of Christians, right? Where, uh, I I remember even for me, when I first became a Christian, one of the things I did on accident is I just started hanging out at church all the time. And I just distanced myself from all my non-Christian friends. And I had all this new group of friends. And I remember my non-believing friends just being like, man, like what happened to you? You started going to church and now like mm. you've changed, man. Like you're mm-hmm. not our friends anymore. Right. And it wasn't a moral decision. I just, I loved the church. I love these new friends. And I just kind of slowly changed. Right. Kind of like when someone gets a new dating relationship and they ditch all their friends or whatever. Um, and yet I was stepping into a relationship with Jesus, with his church. Right. Um, and so that's natural. There's also this like religious legalism thing where it's like, no, we're holy. You're not holy. And there's some motifs in the scriptures around that, right? Come out from the unclean thing and be separate. Mm-hmm. This idea of uh, us being a pure people. And yet we see Jesus modeling coming to us while we were sinners. He died for us. He goes to Zacchaeus's house who was a sinner. Uh, and so there can be this other side of the spectrum of saying, no, be like Jesus, hang out with non-believers, be friends with non-believers. And I think probably the answer is closer to that, right? Obviously be like Jesus. But one thing that I wonder is if Jesus truly was a friend of sinners, like people said he was. I think when we think of the passage where Jesus was a friend of sinners, like, well, the Bible says he was a friend of sinners, right? It's like, well, actually, no, Jesus said, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you called him a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Hmm. So I said, hey, was Jesus a glutton? You would say, no. If I said, was he a drunkard? You would say, no. And I said, was he a friend of tax collectors and sinners? You would say, uh, uh, yes, right? Hmm. So why is that the only thing on the list that he actually was, right? Interesting. Chances are 
Jesus was seen as a friend of sinners because he engaged with them. He spent time with them in the same way that he drank and got a reputation for that. He ate, got a reputation for that, but he wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't a glutton and he probably wasn't a friend friend with tax collectors and sinners. And the reason I know that is because Jesus said things about and to tax collectors and sinners that you wouldn't say to your friends if you were in an intimate relationship, right? So when he's called on that, um, hey, you're a friend of sinners, he says, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm here to call not the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So it's like, oh, like none of us would be friends with sinners long if we started saying in their hearing or about them, I only hang out with these people because they're sick and they need a doctor and that doctor is Jesus. And so I do think the real answer is probably found in the tension of, um, you know, kind of like that tension of like, God so loved the world, he sent his son Jesus, but we should not love the world or anything in the world. I remember mm. D.A. Carson said, God does not love the world with a participatory love, like we tend to love it. Mm-hmm. He loves it with a redemptive love. And I think there's probably a tension in there for us with our relationship with those outside the faith where it's, hey, we love them, and we don't, but we don't really love them in a participatory communal koinonia love. We love them in a sense with a redemptive love that we see them as people who are in need of a savior. And we love them like God loves us when we were a sinner because we go towards them to try to bring them rescue through Jesus. And so there's probably an answer where, yes, we engage with people that gives us a bad reputation with Christians. And yet we know that we are not engaging with them because we have fellowship with them, right? What fellowship does light have with darkness? But we engage with them because this is part of the rescue plan of God is to bring his gospel to people through us engaging with them. I think one of the things you said to me when we had a discussion about this recently was that it seems like people who interact with Jesus leave that conversation changed Mm. as opposed to Jesus being the one who changes based on those conversations. So it feels like there's something, yeah, redemptive going on in that relationship not necessarily participatory, which like, super helpful verbiage to go around because Zacchaeus actually is the one that is changed by this interaction. And it says in verse eight, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Pastor Danny. Mm-hmm. This leads me to the my skeptic question. question. Oh, <laughs> we need, can I just give you a podcast tip real quick? Sure. I feel like we need some music that plays when the skeptics question like a comes. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's like the skeptics <laughs> question. And then we, yeah, continue. Oh, man. We'll talk to the editor of Thank this you. podcast. That's a good idea. Yeah, we'll pass, also, you, we'll I think you are on. also the editor. Yeah. <laughs> AJ at Three Crosses. Anyway, um, the skeptic question Is God going to send me into bankruptcy? Like, come on, four times the amount and God is pleased with that. So like, what is going on? This feels like so much being offered and I can only imagine how many people Zacchaeus has wronged. So that's like a lot of dough to hand over. Is the Lord setting up this system for me to just go broke? I do want to point out, Jesus does not ask Zacchaeus to give anything to anyone. Jesus says, I'm coming to this guy's house for dinner, right? Actually, Jesus gets a bad reputation and Jesus is still going to his house for dinner. Zacchaeus is the one who comes up on his own volition with this idea of, I need to make this right. And so I think part of it is, you know, let's be, you know, real. Jesus does ask people to give all of their money away, right? But Mm -hmm. it's interesting. Jesus seems to ask people to give all their money away 
when he knows they're not going to. Hmm. And in Zacchaeus's case, I'm thinking the rich young ruler there. In Zacchaeus's case, Jesus doesn't ask him to do anything. And Zacchaeus decides to pay back all that's been defrauded. Right? And so maybe Zacchaeus's numbers come from the scriptures, right? The, I mean, four times the amount is a lot. The, the crime in the Old Testament worthy of 4X repayment uh, is the crime that David committed with Bathsheba in a sense, right? Stealing something that's a belonging of someone else and slaughtering it um, is how Nathan relates that to David. He stole your neighbor's sheep and you sacrificed it for your own delight, that kind of thing. So it's like a, it's an indication, a symbolic indication of I've committed a grave sin and I need to make it right uh, to repair the damage that I've caused. Um, and this is a guess. But I would think that Zacchaeus, being a person of means, being a person who has, uh, since as long as maybe he can remember, devoted his life to gaining resources, is acutely aware of how much money he has, acutely aware of how he's gotten that money. And I would guess that the numbers that come out of Zacchaeus's mouth are connected with two things. One, his heart, and two an accurate understanding of his finances. Hmm. And what what I don't mean is that he's like, nah, he could afford it. Maybe he couldn't. Maybe he know. I would think it's actually more likely that Zacchaeus knows that he can give that much back and still be able to pay everyone back, right? That he, he has enough to do all that. Right. But I don't think Zacchaeus is trying to save faith. I think Zacchaeus is trying to make it right. And I, I think of people in my life, I've never seen somebody do this with money, but I've seen people who've caused grave errors with their sin in their life and they get to a point of utter humiliation and they say, I just need to make it right. I'm going to do anything, right? I, I lost my kids because I was a bad dad. I will do anything to make it right. I'm going to go to every soccer game. I'm going to, I messed it up with my wife. Listen, I quit my job. I'm going to, I'm going to do it better this time, right? I'm going to be here for my family, right? They make these drastic changes, not primarily to demonstrate that they're going to make it right, but primarily to make it right. And I think Zacchaeus is saying this money saying this amount of money, not because he has enough, um, but because he has enough to do that. And because I think he understands that this is what would be enough to start to repair some of the harm he's caused by the sinful way he's lived so far. The passage closes out in verses nine and 10, where it says, Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, this is such a beautiful way to wrap a bow around this uh, beautiful passage about Zacchaeus. But if you stop and think about it, it's actually quite surprising to see that Jesus attributes salvation in this context uh, based on nothing else but this man's act alone on money. I would expect you know, knowing what we know about by faith alone, I would expect Jesus to say, this is nice, but like, do you believe? Like trying to clarify his belief, his stance on who Jesus is. And do you believe in that I'm the son of man or something like that? But it seems like Jesus looks at this act and he says, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And then he goes on to say, his mission to seek and save the lost. And so I have two questions to wrap this thing up. Um, from your perspective, what does all of this have to do with salvation? Like what did all of this Zacchaeus story have to do with somebody's salvation? 
And then second, how does this give us a better understanding of this mission outlined in verse 10, which says the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So for the salvation question, it's interesting the the way that Jesus phrases it, right? Today's salvation. Can you read it for us? Today's salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. Right, so today it has come. So, okay, something happened today uh, because he is a son of Abraham, right? Not he's becoming one. He is. Right, so there's a question like what something happened, what happened, right? right? And so Jesus, part of what we need to see here is when Jesus is declaring salvation, he is not declaring salvation because of it, of the action, right? Okay, you're about to repay that. Once you do it, it'll be credited to your account and then boom, you're a Christian, right? right. It's something has happened. What has happened here? So I feel like the way Jesus shares the salvation sentiment makes us think, what has happened here? Hmm. And the biggest thing that's happened here is something has changed in this guy's heart mm -hmm. where he came into the story as a rich chief tax collector, hoarding wealth, right? Ill-gotten gain, messing people up by taking their money away. And now he's outputting of the story, giving his money away, making things right, like celebrating, right? He, he, something has been transformed in him that proves that he is a child of Abraham, right? And this is a, I don't know if this is what Jesus means, but this is a New Testament motif that actually starts in Genesis chapter 12 that uh, Paul says that those are children of Abraham who are faith children of Abraham, not because of their lineage, biology, but because like Abraham, they believe God, it's credited to them as righteousness. The, the credit they get to their account in a financial sense is because of their belief in God. Hmm. And so something... It has happened in Zacchaeus's life that indicates that he has exerted faith in God. And so he got credited to his account, the righteousness of God, which proves he is a faith child of Abraham. And I think the aha moment that the whole world sees is the exclamation that Zacchaeus has made. So something happened in Zacchaeus's heart to flip some switch, to open his eyes to the things of God so that now he's a different person. And so I think this lines up with what we believe about the gospel is that when something changes in our hearts where God transforms us into a different person, that's called salvation. That's called transformation. That's called being made right in the eyes of God. So that happened to Zacchaeus. And so I don't want us to get in the weeds of, oh, he did these things. He gave money away. Now he's a Christian. It's like, no, him giving money away was like when everyone's eyes went wide open, they're like, what has changed in this guy? Something happened in his heart. And the big thing we see, right? He came into the story longing for Jesus. Jesus, with one word, with one invitation, with one invitation to go and dine with him hmm. is enough to hmm. change everything about this guy's life, right? Just to know that God wants a relationship with him, right? And I would say the same thing if you're listening today and you're thinking, man, I need salvation. I need my heart to be transformed. I need to be changed. How can that happen? It's it's responding to one word, the invitation of Jesus to come and be with you. And if you say, yes, Jesus, come, come and be with me in that moment, transformation happens. And if your heart is transformed, your life is going to start outputting differently. So I think salvation happens somewhere in this exchange between him and Jesus. And in terms of the mission of Jesus, I came to seek and save, save the lost. 
I mean, Jesus is walking down the street and that's what he's doing. Right? And we see this as he enters into Jericho, when he's still outside of the wall, uh, the chapter before he runs into uh, a, a blind beggar, right? Another person with a physical disability like Zacchaeus, who just says, son of David, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the way that he says it, son of David, indicates that he understands who Jesus is, just like Zacchaeus climbing this tree indicates he understands who Jesus is. And so Jesus responds with uh, this uh, responds to the man's faith with his healing power, right? And so we say the same thing. This is Jesus' mission, is to go from city to city, and his presence alone, invitational presence, transforms hearts. And this is the moment of salvation. He sought out Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus thought he was seeking out Jesus. He came right into this town to find him, and him finding Zacchaeus brought salvation to someone who was lost at the beginning of the story. It's fascinating that this story and the story previous uh, is talking about the way that Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. And both are having to do with something about money. And perhaps it's an invitation for us to to meditate on this pattern that's going on um, that leads to somebody um, experiencing the salvation of Christ. And so uh, one of the things you called us to is to go to our website and enter this 90-day challenge so before we leave, can you give a, just a, a I guess a sales pitch, <laughs> a preview <laughs> of uh, what that 90 day challenge is supposed to be all about? Yeah, we talked in the sermon on Sunday that, you know, I, I love that you called it a sales pitch, but uh, really <laughs> the premise is God is not after your money, he's after your heart. And so really we were thinking as a team, what, what are some things that that we can do in a, as a church to invite people into a process where God can grab a hold of their heart when it comes to giving. Right? And so there's these practices God calls us to engage in, like tithing, generosity, and involve the ministry local church. And we said, you know what, let's, let's create a challenge that for 90 days we give people an opportunity to step into a new habit in their lives where God is likely to change their heart by connecting uh, with their giving at some level. And so you know, if you're interested in taking any of you the challenge, uh, it's very simple. You opt in. No one's like tracking you, follow it up with you. It's just a, a personal devotional challenge for each of us. But three categories. One, we're inviting folks uh, who've never experienced giving before uh, to move for the next 90 days from giving nothing to giving something. Create some sort of recurring uh, weekly, monthly, whatever it is, gift to the Lord through the ministry of the church, just to get in the spiritual practice of giving to see what God does as we start to sacrifice some of what he's given to us to his kingdom causes. Uh, for folks who are already giving, but looking like, hey, what's the next step for me? We're inviting folks to move from giving something to tithing. This biblical concept of taking the first 10% of what's what we collect at work or through whatever it is we do and surrendering that to the Lord through the ministry of the local church. And so if you've never tithed before, if you're not a tither, this is, hey, take the next 90 days and step into tithing for the first time. Build that rhythm in your life. Uh, many of folks who've been in our church for a long time or grew up in the church, that's just been a habit of theirs forever and ever. And so we say, hey, what's the challenge for folks who are already in this practice of tithing? So we're inviting folks uh, to be willing to move from tithing to this idea of generosity, saying, hey, how do I add to my tithes offerings? And say, God, I, I'm bringing you the gifts, my 10% every week or every month, whatever it is. But um, man, I want to be used by you. I want my finances to be used by you to impact this world for your kingdom. And so whether that's giving to a ministry of our church, like our benevolence fund, our world missions fund, our building fund, uh, our summer camp scholarship fund, any of those things, or giving to a, 
the poor in our community or being generous with the free sources in your wallet, whatever it is. Uh, we want people to self-select in, but just say, hey, God, what's the next step for me if I'm already tithing to take a 90-day challenge into the next field of generosity? So um, yeah, that's on our website. Anybody can sign up for that. And like I said, it's really a a spiritual devotional practice like anything else. If you sign up, we'll send you a weekly devotional that's kind of catered to um, whichever one of those three categories you step into. And our hope is that God meets folks in a profound way as they take a next step with the Lord into giving. Awesome. Well, I'm excited for the 90-day challenge. And uh, Pastor Danny will be here next week talking about uh, more money topics. So, <laughs> Pastor Danny, thanks for uh, chatting with us. Thanks for having me.